Um, okay. So I began, we began this retreat, that sounds too loud. We began this retreat with an overview of the practice, really trying to orient us to what we're doing here um, and why. And I want to end in much that same way now that you've been through that experience. For some of you, you've been to this retreat a number of times and, and know the terrain somewhat. But for many of you, this is new. So just to get, give a sense of the big picture of the power and the purpose of concentration in our path of practice. There's uh, a teaching, a mental factor that the Buddha talks about called Sampajanya, clear comprehension. And in Yanaponikatera's book, Heart of Buddhist Meditation, he talks about the four kinds of clear comprehension, uh, suitability, purpose, um, domain, and uh, reality. I'm going to mainly start with these first two because it really is getting a sense of why and how we practice and for what purpose? What's the appropriate context within which we do our practice and more even live our lives? So I want to start with a couple of vignettes from my past week um, that just came to me. We'll see how relevant they are to the theme of the talk. But um, just as a bit of background, when I'm teaching this retreat, I actually stay at my home in Woodacre. I live just a few minutes away and so I go back and forth quite a bit, um, which is one of the reasons, no, it is the reason why I was actually a little late to the morning sitting this morning. I don't, I'm sure none of you noticed as you were sitting there in your depth of samadhi, but I drove in at 5.30 and the gate was locked. I hadn't done that before and I couldn't remember the combination. I'm like, 802432, None of those are right. I'm not giving you the combination. I'm still not sure what it is. But at some point, I realized I'm not getting in this gate, at least in a car. So I had to park down there and walk all the way up to here. Very mindfully, sit down quietly. But anyway, that's just part of today. But the other day, I think it was just yesterday, I was doing one of my trips back and forth, and I saw this couple walking their dogs, which is a very common sight in Woodacre. Dogs are very popular in Woodacre. It's a tiny little town, pretty quiet there. Um, we actually one year had a calendar called the Dogs of Woodacre because they're, you know, they're so known by everyone and they're often sleeping in the middle of the road. Anyway, this couple was out walking their dogs, which is a very common sight, two dogs sort of you know, gallivanting around. I always think dogs are the optimists of the animal world out there. I was like, this is so good, I get to do this. Cats are kind of the cynics of the animal world. It's like, prove it that you love me. You know. Anyway. But they had their two dogs, normal. But she was also pulling a little red cart, like a radio flyer, I think you call it here. Um, and in that cart was a little dog. And immediately I got the scenario that they have three dogs, but one of them can't walk anymore, or at least can't keep up. But it got to go on the walk. And it was just that gesture of the two dogs, the, pe- the, the couple, and pulling this little dog and it was just a little black and white, tiny little dog. The other dogs were bigger. But it was having such a good time. It was in this little cart. And you know how dogs are, they connect with you. So I was looking at it, and it looked right at me and said, isn't, isn't this fun? I get to go on a walk. And it just really touched me. You know, the kindness of these people, that that dog's happiness was so important to them, that they were pulling it around on this walk. And I thought, that's 
what we're looking for here, right? It's just that, that kindness that really connects and cares for all beings, you know, not really discriminating. And so this value of kindness is really one of the, you know, clear comprehension of purpose of this practice. The Dalai Lama often, if he's forced to talk about Buddhism, he just says, no, my religion is kindness. That's my value. And I recently read this uh, quote from Roger Ebert, that very great film critic who died last year and went through a lot in his challenges, but people said he was always in good spirits, even when he was really challenged. And he said, kindness covers all of my political beliefs. No need to spell them out. I believe that if, at the end, according to our abilities, we have done something to make others a little happier and something to make ourselves a little happier, that is about the best we can do. To make others less happy is a crime. To make ourselves unhappy is where all crime starts. We must try to contribute joy to the world. That is true no matter what our problems, our health, our circumstances. We must try. I didn't always know this, and I'm happy I lived long enough to find it out. And I think you all have lived long enough to find it out too, that kindness and happiness and joy are really important. We might say, you know, he said, that's the best we can do. I think the Buddha would say, there's more that we can do. But that's a great starting point. And then my other little vignette, a little different, uh, on one of my walks up in the hills this week, I bumped into John, who, man- who runs the ranch next door all the cows, and they have 600 acres. And so we were just chatting a little bit about the ranch and farm and everything. And he told me this story. He said, yeah, a little while ago, the fence line got broken, this one up here between his land and ours, so the cows got out. He said, so me and my son, we we came over to your land, and we were looking for the cows, and we saw these people, and we said, have you seen any cows? (laughs) And guess what they did? And he said, we said, have you seen any cows? They wouldn't talk to him. Even to just say, no, sorry, haven't seen any cows. This is not clear comprehension of suitability. You know, we we take up these practices with good intention. We have to adjust them for the circumstances. So I said, I'm not sure why that came to me, but... Because it's what I'm really wanting to talk about. It's not, you know, about holding on to certain values or ideals about ourselves or the world or even how we are on the cushion. It really is, how are we in the world? How do we show up in the world? There's this story of a a famous Zen master, I think he was Korean, and someone had come to visit him was a little challenging, um, just saying, what's the point of all this practice? What's the point of your lifetime of all this effort and sincerity? And the Zen master's answer was an appropriate response, which kind of seems a little weak, but actually to be able to have the appropriate response to life situations, this is what we practice for, this suitability of purpose. So when we look in the big picture, well, it's helpful to look in the big picture to see this context. So there's this big picture, and then there's what we do with that the benefits and the challenge and the unfolding of this practice. This is where you get out your list.
And this is something I've been compiling for a while. Actually, I got the beginning of it from a fellow teacher, Gil, and I've just been adding to it as I, as I teach in this way. And I just wanted to point to the centrality or the importance of concentration in all of these different teachings. And this is nowhere near all of them, but it's certainly some of the primary ones. And so in all these lists, I've put in boldface concentration. I said it's a little small on my copy it went that way but hopefully you can read it just to see you know that there's this this um, reference again and again to the importance and to the power of concentration and that nearly all of these lists start in different places they actually acknowledge that we're in different parts of development of practice or in different situations. So it's not just one right way that starts from A and goes to Z. There's all of this uh, possible flexibility about the practice. So some start with faith, some with mindfulness, some start with virtue. One starts with suffering and says, oh, if we're suffering, this is how the path and practice can be onward leading. And even though they're presented in this linear fashion, it's just the nature of of words and and putting something down on paper, there can be this sense of linearity. Um, As you know, the Noble Eightfold Path is often depicted as a circle. So it's not necessarily having a beginning and an end, but always feeding into itself and many feedback loops. But actually all of these um, processes are like that. They're, They're not only linear, though there's nearly always some linearity, there is some developmental quality to their unfolding, but they're certainly not regimented like a ruler where, you know, it's this much for this and this much for this. You might might take a long time in a certain area of practice and development and move very quickly through other aspects. So not to think of it um, too sort of in a limited way. But the other way that I wanted to point to that I think is helpful to understand about these lists and about our practice is you can really see it like a bell curve. And in a bell curve, there's, you know, there's the, these foundational practices that are like the engine of the practice, getting it going. And say for the jhana factors, it's uh, vitaka vichara. And that's what we can, that, they're the only aspects of the factors that we can do with intention. We can aim and sustain. The rest are developmental. They come out of that. Um, in the factors of awakening, mindfulness and investigation, they're kind of like the engines, the foundation practices out of which the other ones grow. Energy a little we can do intentionally, but sometimes it's just not so much something that we can control. And then they have a peak. They have a kind of heightened expression. And it's often pity, rapture, or some variation of that. But the important part about this is that it always subsides a little. There's this peak of energy, and then there's this subsiding to the more subtle or the more tranquil states of pasadi, tranquility, or sukha, happiness, gladness, joy, not joy, um, different, different uh, versions of happiness or gladness. From that, at that point, that's where the concentration usually comes in, and after the concentration, the wisdom or insight, and then the unfolding to awakening. And you can see that patterning in different ways in all these lists.
So why this is important or helpful for us to know is to recognize that there are foundational practices or experiences or areas of of cultivation that are really important for us to stabilize in, that we can't rush this, um, and that pity or any of those kind of heightened you know, experiences, the, the, the development of that is more tranquility or more calm. We can often get entranced with pity. Um, we can think of it as you know, the excitement thing, be fascinated by it. Some people get so habituated to it or addicted to it, it's like it's not meditation unless I'm having these rushes of energy or bliss or certain other signs of pity. And to really recognize that's not the point of practice. It's, it's, a, it's definitely necessary and a helpful uh, state and experience to have, even if it's subtle. So again, we don't have to look for these big dramatic experiences. But I just came up with this imagery that pity is like the booster rockets on those big, um, what is it, like the space shuttle, what do they call it? You know, those huge things, and that's what all the drama is about. If you watch the space shuttle go off and these rockets fire, <laughs> big flames and everything, the ground shakes. But you get to a certain point of momentum and especially when you release from gravity. And what happens? Space junk is basically what happens. They're out there somewhere, but they get ejected. You don't need them anymore. And what I'm told, I'm not an expert, of course. I mean, you know, my, my, my experience comes from watching the movie Gravity, so that's my professional <laughs> credentials. Is at, once you're out there, they just have these tiny little rockets that just go like this, and they're they're constantly adjusting, but you only need a little bit. And I was even told, again, I presume this is founded on the internet, um, as you're going, say, to the moon, as one does, um, you never actually point it directly at the moon. It's always a little bit this way, and then a little bit that way. And I think that's just such a helpful image for us. You know, we need that initial momentum of practice, and Perhaps, you know, some drama, the, the um, purification, the real depth and strength of purification that can happen. But after a while, the inclination or the tendency is to calming. And just these very balanced efforts. And also, in this moon analogy, that we, don't, we shouldn't be too like, oh, that's where I want to be, that's where I want to go. It's more in the basic direction of and trusting that, getting more um, okay with that, not so goal-oriented, because that that can actually lead us astray. So this sense of the foundational practices that are so important to establish, there's actually a whole sutta about this called the Gavi Sutta, and I guess this is why cows came to mind for my opening. It's a whole sutta, well, a whole sutta, but... And that the analogy is about a cow wandering out of its domain. And this is what it says. Suppose there was a mountain cow, foolish, inexperienced, unfamiliar with her pasture, unskilled in roaming on rugged mountains, and she were to think, what if I were to go in a direction I have never gone before, to eat grass I have never eaten before, to drink water I have never drunk before? She would lift her hind foot 
without having placed her front foot hoof firmly and as a result would not go in a direction she had never gone before to eat grass, etc., etc. And as for the place where she was standing when that thought occurred to her, what if I was to go elsewhere? She could not return there safely. Why is that? Because she is a foolish, inexperienced mountain cow, (laughs) unfamiliar with her pasture and unskilled in roaming in rugged mountains. Well, the Buddha goes on to compare that cow to a foolish meditator who in the same way has kind of the grass is greener mentality of wanting to go too fast in practice and wanting to have experiences before they are established where they are. And he belabors this point, as the Buddha is wont to do with a lot of repetition, but it's a really important point for us that this establishment of the basics of the practice, the foundations of the practice, is it cannot be overestimated. And if you're anything like me, you probably had many times the thought, oh no, not another breath, or, you know, another day of breath or hour of breath or whatever. Just to really settle back and realize this is an important and helpful place to be to really establish ourselves in this connection with the breath, in this sense of calming, as I said, having this sense of the arc of the practice, that this calming and stabilizing is so valuable. And then as we go on with the practice, as it deepens, we'll have a really good foundation that we're building the practice on. The other thing I want to acknowledge as I talk about calming and quietening and staying with the breath is this is really difficult, what we're asking ourselves to do, to sit still, to be with a simple object like the breath, and to basically say not now to virtually everything else. As humans, as a species, we are built and primed for movement. And we have these big brains because our ancestors were really curious about stuff and figured a lot of stuff out and and kind of, you know, really expanded the territory and the capacity of humans as a species. So we are the, the products of that. You know, we have these big brains, we have these two legs, we're upright, we've got this face full of sensory input places, we've got these hands that have a grippy nature to them more than almost any other creature. We can do stuff with our hands. And then we take all that, all of that energy and curiosity and, you know, the busyness of our lives, and we say, now just sit still and and be quiet and focus on your breath. And then a day or two in, people are coming in going, dang, I'm just not concentrated. Why can't I stay with the breath? What's wrong with me? It's like, give yourself a break. This is really difficult. This is really challenging. And so really important not to judge or evaluate your practice. You know, even in the last days, people have been saying, oh, I think I could have been more concentrated, or I should be, or not far enough along. It's like, we keep saying this is a short time, relatively, to develop concentration. And especially given the busyness of our lives and the stress that most of us have and the challenges of just having a mind and a body and having relationships, to really respect that and and understand the, the magnitude of the task 
we've set ourselves. I talked about my last talk about being in India on pilgrimage and really connecting with the life and times of the Buddha. It was so rich to be in these places that I'd only read about and to have a sense of, you know, the Buddha and, and uh, all the people who populate the canon as Guy, my husband, said, it's like, you know, the Buddha and Sariputra and Mahamogalana were more important than Barack Obama or, you know, John Boehner or anyone. You know, we were in that world of 2,600 years ago. And it's a timeless world where people walked everywhere. I was just reading a sutta the other day, actually, and it was talking about the seven benefits of walking meditation. And the first one was, you can go on journeys. <laughs> it's like, oh, if you know how to walk well, there you go. That's all you need. We live in a very different time. We have this busyness and, and uh, f- even franticness to our experience. And so we're asking a lot of this mind and body to do this. So you should have a lot of respect and appreciation that you've done this, that you've made this shift and, and, and practiced in this way. It really is quite amazing that this many people care enough about this practice to devote themselves in this way. I spoke again the other night about the, the Buddha talks about these four kinds of students, you know, with different kinds of progress, the ones that are uh, where the path is fast and they have no pain, it's just like, boom, off they go. Or fast, but there's a lot of pain. Slow and not much pain or no pain. And then slow and a lot of pain. And if you're like me, we, I put myself in that last category of, you know, challenges in practice and pe- thinking other people are understanding more or doing it better or going deeper. And I can remember for years kind of, thinking everyone else was getting it but me, and people were going through these huge catharses in the hall and emoting, and it didn't happen to me. It just wasn't my nature or my temperament. So I was always kind of judging and assessing myself and basically not good enough or not deep enough. And for me, doing this practice really was a turning point. Actually, the longer retreats, but I took about 10 years where I did mainly concentration practices. And I think I talked about this a little already, just really gave me a lot of faith in myself, of course, but more as a connection to the lineage that I was getting this mind manual, this meditation manual from 2,600 years ago, and I could follow those instructions and that they basically still worked, that this training of the mind was possible. And for me, as I said, I, I started with metta practice, metta jhana, and to know that I could actually train and increase my capacity for kindness really was very transforming for me, really healing. And then to add to that the deepening of the concentration, very valuable. So all of us will find our own way with that. We have different possibilities in our lives. But for all of us, we're developing these grooves in the mind, these grooves of preferring stillness or calm or quiet, collectedness, peace, tranquility, metta, kindness. With the repetition, and now we're, you know, the science is really proving this neuroplasticity and all this research that's happening on 
about meditation, we always think, why don't they come meditate instead of doing research on meditation? But anyway, you know, it, the science really is proving that with this repetition, you know, you might be going, oh no, another breath. But there's a power in that repetition of attention and that preferencing and uh, shifting of perception that's happening that really is life-changing, really will carry somewhat, whatever degree, you know, you won't begin the next retreat where you left off in this one. I wish it were so, but it's not. But something will carry over. And the main thing that may carry over, that, that I think will carry over for you, is the training that we've done here. And I've said to many people, if I could choose for you, you know, a deep pity experience or jhana or whatever, or a real competency in training, I would choose training. Because that you can take with you. That's a skill you can learn and that you can then apply in other situations. Jhana, pity, all of these other experiences, they're valuable, they're powerful, but they're temporary. You know, they, they are just conditions of that moment and those causes and conditions. And they will necessarily pass. They're impermanent, as we see. But the training, if it's really integrated into our body of knowledge, into our wisdom factor, we know how to do that now. We know what it's like to collect and unify the mind. And I'm not saying that, you know, that's where you hung out the whole time, but all of you had a taste or more of that, of knowing what it's like to say, not now, to experience, to all of the other things, and really unify the attention, how to seclude the mind, guard the sense doors, invite and prefer stillness out of all of the changing objects that we can experience. And then from that place, just as we've done the last day or so, what it's like to open up, to let go of that preferring and actually really taste and enjoy the richness of experience from a more stable place from a mind that is connected and really able to be fully present with experience. And so we're just wanting to, as we've said many times, give you kind of the lay of the land of this practice. Because what I see is that many people think that what they're doing is vipassana, but they're actually doing shamatha or breath meditation. They're holding on to the breath, they cling to the breath, and they're kind of got an eye open for something else that might happen. But unless it's really painful, they're like, it's a distraction, I'll pay attention until it goes away, and then I'll come back to the breath. And there's this sort of tightness around the practice and, and a sense of limitation. Hopefully here you've got a sense of what it's really like to fully immerse in the breath with this, with this um, right attitude and then how to let it go. Again, there's this spectrum of practices that we want you to get familiar with. At one end, samatha, or calming, breath, meditation, as we've been doing here. At the other end, vipassana, vipassana, insight, really opening to change, curious about experience, investigation, insight, three characteristics. At either end, they look really different. But most of us are swimming in the middle ground, and that's perfectly appropriate. It's a good place to be. But what, we, what is helpful is some clarity about what 
techniques we're actually using and what our goals or intentions are for practice. How to actually glide easily between the two, because unless we understand that, we end up not doing either practice well. We're kind of in the middle and not using all the skillful techniques there are out there. So as we learn what a collected and unified mind is, we really start to know that, and we know how to develop that. Not with a tight and narrow focus that's really got a lot of straining and striving on it, that it can be really spacious and open and relaxed. Reminded of, you know, you can get flashlights that have a changing magnification and they can be very, almost laser-like at one end and then you turn the dial and then they bathe the whole uh, sphere, the whole uh, whatever you're looking at with light in a very soft way. This is what we learn to do with our awareness. And so we know how to make those adjustments as appropriate. So um, that's the training that we can do. As I said, I, you know, I got so interested in these practices that I did many years of just, you know, breath and uh, the Brahma Viharas and different, different practices. And I remember one retreat where I six weeks and I, I made this determination, I'd do two weeks of concentration and then I'd open up to Vipassana, do a month of Vipassana. And so, you know, started the retreat, usual hindrances settling in, got quieter. And then the, the breath meditation became quite lovely. You know, it was easy to connect with the breath and absorb in the breath. But I knew this date was coming closer and closer. I told my teacher this is what I was going to do. And as it got closer, I was going, oh, do I have to? You know, it's so protected here. It's so calm and peaceful. And I felt like, you know, it'd be like coming down from a pristine mountaintop into the marketplace of, you know, all the six sense doors and all the busyness of everything that's out there. And so I was very reluctantly going towards that time. But, you know, I know, as I've told you, as I tell myself, we don't practice concentration just for concentration. It is for insight. So... The sitting came where I said I would do that, and I did something like we did this morning of just opening up in this very gradual way. And what was interesting was it was actually quite lovely, and I don't know what your experience has been like in these couple of days, but to have the mind be steady, a little sweetened from the concentration practice, a little malleable and wieldy, as I've talked about, and then to open it up, it was just like this orchestra playing and I didn't you know I wasn't preferring any one instrument uh, like I had been with the breath but there was this dance or orchestra that was just very alive but but soothing or not soothing but just very uh, engaging and I could see that the seven factors as Adrian's been talking about were really at play there with the mind that was stable there was this possibility that they were present. I didn't have to, you know, go searching for them. They were there, perhaps subtly, but they were there. And I could incline the mind towards them. I could, the mind was steady enough to know that. So this is what we practice for, that we develop this steadiness of mind and then we open up, turn to other experiences, knowing how to do that, to turn to changing experiences. And that's the simple way of doing it. Choiceless awareness is what we 
usually call that practice of just opening up to everything that's happening at all of the sense doors, not preferring one thing over another. And there's just this aliveness to the practice. And as the mindfulness uh, through the concentration is very uh, clear and steady, you know, the minuteness of that can be quite, quite amazing, quite fascinating. Um, and we can see perhaps the three characteristics, whether we do it more deliberately as Temple was leading us through with a kind of uh, inquiry into it using Dhamma Vichaya, the investigation factor to really, you know, lean into a little bit the impermanence or the unsatisfactoriness. But often opening to the three characteristics can be a little challenging is if we really deeply start to open to impermanence. You know, we feel the ground moving out from underneath us. We set, have that sense of the unreliability of things that we took to be solid. The body, you know, objects, our sense of self. This can bring a little or a lot of, of anxiety or even fear as we open to that. The steady mind allows us to be with that, allows us to see clearly enough to to um, open to those reflections and is also steady enough to hold the impact, the import of them. So it really does help us, you know, as the, 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 the depth of the, the calming, the steadiness of the concentration. And insight goes more deeply into a concentrated mind. So there's a power, it's a magnification process that happens. The concentration also allows us to be with difficulty in our practice. As we've calmed and collected the mind when stuff happens as it will, as it does, pain in the body, things like that, we can trust that we can open to that. And again, a lot of skill around working with pain, but the mind that's steady, that can stay at least a little bit open, sometimes things can be released or reduced through that capacity. It allows us to stay steady for our emotional life. The, you know, it's so challenging as we get pulled into our relationships and our ups and downs. We get so identified. Again, this steadiness. Oh, this is fear or anger or sadness. And this steady attention has some stability as we move in that arena of the emotional life, our emotions and thoughts. And then the mind itself and being with thoughts, actually being able to see the beginning of a thought, the persistence of a thought, and then the ending of a thought. You, you know, sometimes we're there at the beginning, but we're gone. We're on the train. We're lost. We're, we've, we've bought the ticket and we're going wherever that train is going. The steady, concentrated mind can see that as another arising and know it. And this is one of the hardest things to bring mindfulness to. Thoughts themselves, to see the nature of a thought and not get sucked into it, not get identified with it. And then even turn the awareness to awareness itself, the nature of consciousness. It takes a steady mind to open to such a subtle experience to actually recognize the nature of what's doing the knowing, to lose some of the duality of self and object. 
the, it, this needs stability of attention. So concentration really helps us in deepening our practice in all of these ways. So we can use a samatha practice, the calming practice, for help to help us in any kind of retreat that we do, no matter what it's called. Any kind of meditation needs some kind of stabilizing factor, needs some degree of calming and concentration. And so our practice can be this beautiful flow between calming and secluding and then this real openness and curiosity and investigation and then a knowing of when we need to collect again, when we've gotten a little out of balance or lost in something. And so we're actually learning to swim in these waters, as Temple was talking about, this giant aquarium, and there's this beautiful flow where it's just very intuitive, our being in our practice. The jhana factors, if they were new for you, it's a really helpful map. Uh, You know, it's one of the things on this list that I gave you. Vitaka and vichara. We need those factors in anything we do with intentionality, any creative act, any training of the mind or body, being at the gym, being out in nature, bird watching, sudoku, sudoku, I never get which way it goes. Um, all of that, it needs those factors to, um, to train in. And then once we know that, it's like, oh, right. Not to have some sense, oh, I need to do it over long periods of time, but refreshing all the time. And so using that, and, and this knowing of the arc of practice, this bell curve that I spoke of, first it needs the foundational uh, practices, the engines, and then whatever what might be a little more dramatic perhaps, but inclining towards sweetening. And as we go through this arc again and again, the, the pity just does get less, and we're not so fascinated by it. And we have this sense of inclining towards the calming, the pasadi, the tranquility, and the sweetness, that this is onward leading. So we really develop this training for ourselves. We really understand the path of practice and how to meditate. Because for most of us, we have a tendency to look outward for affirmation, you know, this evaluation, how am I doing? You know, I know you've been doing it, the little look out of the corner of the eyes, who's still sitting, who's not sitting, who's walking where, doing what, you know. And then to the teachers, you know, how am I doing? Can I, can I get your seal of approval? I can't tell you how many people will come into an interview and start to describe an experience that they may have had months ago or even years ago and then say, what was that? And we're like, I don't know. I wasn't there. And, you know, part of it is unless we're with you in the unfolding and tracking it, it really is hard to know. And the other thing is it doesn't really matter what that was six months ago or a year ago. But, and people often say, is that normal? And my answer always is yes, because you had it. So it means it's possible. It's in the realm of normality. You've had that experience. It's all, all good. I've told you I you know, collect cartoons, or meditation cartoons. There's a subset of cartoons 
of the guru cartoons, whole, whole range of those. And the qualifications for being a cartoon guru are you sit on a mountaintop and it's usually triangular with a little bit of snow on it and you're wearing a loincloth and you have a beard. They're all men, I'm afraid to say. Um, and this one I saw, the guru had a computer out and the head's always just kind of popping up over the edge, you know, you climbed up and you're like, there's a guru and you know the question's being asked. And in this one, the guru says, until this year, I couldn't find the meaning of life either, but then I switched search engines. <laughs> it's all out there. You probably know, I don't know if you do, that you know, Google is really into meditation, Google the company. Um, they have a whole project of teaching meditation. It's called Search Within. <laughs> and this is what we're doing here. It's a great title to really, so that we know for ourselves we're not having to rely on other people to tell us, you know, how to practice. We start to internalize. And of course, we always, it's always helpful to have teachers and guidance. And, and you know, that's why I love referring to the suttas. That's our basic instruction manual. There's huge, end, you know, endless pages of instruction there. So it's not that it's only that we trust ourselves, but as we integrate these wise teachings we know how to put them into practice for ourselves. That's what's important. And as I've said, you know, for the Buddha, the jhanas were just central. Look at that list of all the different teachings where he referred to them. And if you start to read the suttas, you will come across references to jhana woven through. It's in at the Eightfold Path, right samadhi, defined as the four jhanas. Um, And as the years went by, hundreds, thousands of years, this um, practices got developed and deepened and more skillful means developed. We've referred to this manual called the Vasudhimaga, the Path of Purification by Buddha Gosha. He was a a fifth century monastic who really just compiled, he he must have been amazing because it's about this thick in English, all of the different practices and all of the techniques in this one book. But by the time of Buddhaghosa, jhana had become so deep and so profound that it was difficult to attain. If you remember my descriptions from, uh, my descriptions, I read from the suttas, the descriptions of jhana, where it talked about the body infused with these feelings like cool water and refreshing and and, uh, suffusing. In the, in the Vasudhimaga, it's, the jhanas are so deep and powerful that there's not any sen- bodily senses. The senses are just either diminished or cut off. And so um, it became very difficult to attain that kind of jhana for people. And then in the 10th, 11th century, Buddhism was wiped out in India. It's one of the things you see as you go on pilgrimage, just this trajectory of the flourishing, this beautiful flourishing of the teachings and practices, monasteries and and universities with tens of thousands of monks practicing, uh, huge libraries all destroyed, monasteries burnt, books burnt. And so these practices got lost in in many countries. Tanasaro Bhikkhu, who's uh, one of our eminent uh, Buddhist scholars, um, re-edited uh, a book that was already available called Buddhist Religion, The Buddhist Religion. He actually, in his editing, changed to The Buddhist Religions, plural, because he said they're so 
differentiated, that you could almost see them as different religions. But in that history, he talks about how in the late 19th century, the Thai government did a survey to see if anyone was obtaining jhana or nibbana and decided that there weren't anyone, that wasn't anyone. And so it began a whole prejudice about jhana and even nibbana, that it wasn't possible these days, that the sasanas, they said, deteriorated so much that this wasn't possible. And the government wanted monks to be school teachers and really just sort of um, really corralled the whole tried to corral a whole monastic system into serving government aims and, and being just um, uh, places for education and medical uh, dispensing. Many monks, of course, really objected to that and ended up hiding in the forest and starting a whole forest tradition to try and get out of that. But a real, you know, it's, it's interesting to just understand the whole history. There was a whole belief also that people would get attached to the bliss of jhana and not go deeper, that it was so kind of seductive and beguiling. So there was a whole sort of anti-jhana movement in many Buddhist countries for a long time. And I think I mentioned it was Mahasi Sayadaw and teachers like him. Mahasi was, Mahasi Sayadaw was the teacher of Upandita, who's the teacher of many of us and our teachers. Um, so direct lineage, deciding that jhana wasn't necessary for insight that upachara samadhi, access concentration, was all that was needed. And so I've trained probably tens of thousands of people, I, I don't know how many, to just that level of concentration and many people attaining stream entry and further degrees of enlightenment. And so that became the dominant practice, uh, especially in Burma, but to some extent practices like that in, in Thailand. And when Jack and Joseph and Christopher and Christina and Sharon went to India, uh, sorry, went to India, well, India, but particularly Burma and Thailand brought these practices back, that's the tradition they brought back to us. And there was a real um, appropriateness and validity to that as we established these practices in the West. Many people wouldn't understand or perhaps didn't know or couldn't deepen to the level of concentration, certainly that the Vasudhimaga talks about, but even to other levels. And our minds were, as your minds, I'm sure you've seen, you know, crazy and all the emotions and the stress was like, let's just get in the body here. Let's start to understand these minds. And, and, and the practice can be powerful and deep in that way, and I'm sure you've all had the benefit of that. Um, but over time, we've really come to recognize the value of samatha practices, of the length and depth of, of that whole practice. And there's now a resurgence, and many of you are here because of that. Some of you are here because it was just the right time of retreat, I know that, but many of you are here because of that interest. And so jhana is almost the in thing these days, and people are advertising jhana retreats and doing jhana practice, so, and so it's great. Um, that there is this renewed interest and for us a variety of ways of practicing. We've mentioned this teacher Pauk Saida, our temple was a monk in his monastery. Uh, Philip and I have both practiced with him here in the West. At any one time there's at least 700 people in his monastery, male and female, monks and nuns, uh, lay people, all practicing these deep uh, samatha jhana practices. So it's really very inspiring and We've said now we've been doing the concentration retreat for 11 years, not calling it jhana, because it really is this training that we want to make sure is established here and that people 
have a sense of and know how to develop for themselves. That this practice takes time to deepen, but you all have deepened in it. You all are in this training, know how to train in this way. Whatever degree of calm or collectedness you have, it's greater than it was when you started the retreat. And you can hopefully all feel a benefit of that in your practice. So as we go home, as we make this transition to leaving the seclusion of the retreat, because it's not just our minds that have been secluded, our bodies have been secluded in a very literal way from the busyness of the world. All of the supports that we have here, you know, someone just putting three meals a day on the table for us, someone else washing our dishes, someone else cleaning the bathrooms, a lot of seclusion here. We, we go back to the world, and that's right and good that we do that, that we take these practices back out into the world. But as we do this, really helpful to just reflect on what it is you've learned here, what qualities you've cultivated and really feel somewhat established in, and what perhaps have you just been introduced to and you know you would like to deepen in more. You know, to just know that there's an endless depth that this practice can take us to. And so perhaps we've just got a little taste of something and we want to continue with this. But we just start to recognize what has been developed. I mean, perhaps even in these last days something happened and you noticed that you were able to be more present for it. You weren't as scattered or disturbed as you were at the beginning of the retreat. Perhaps you can really touch into this sense of calm or kindness and know that that's something that you can not in a not hold on to, I'm not talking about that, but as you know it for yourself, you know that it's available. This sense of well-being that we can touch into on a retreat like this, we know how to attune to that. We know we have tools and techniques and the confidence to employ them. You've got a sense of how motivating or clarifying unification of purpose is, this clear comprehension of purpose. I spoke in the beginning about how powerful it is that we all come together wanting to do this same practice. And you can, you can kind of feel it. I don't know, it's a little intangible, but in the whole, this unification of the shared practice. You know, in Vipassana retreats, people's practice can go in so many different directions, as it should. You know, it's more open, there's so much to explore. We can feel the unification of that. And so really start to trust that, to have that sense of how motivating and, and uh, clarifying that is. And again, this big picture that I keep pointing to, that we're not getting concentrated for concentration's sake. This path of practice goes in one direction, and that's the direction of more freedom, more happiness, and liberation. But we reap benefits on the way. And this sense of well-being here and now 
is one of the great benefits of this practice. It's not to strengthen the ego, look great, I can do this, look, you know, my badge of concentration or whatever, but really to have this sense of knowing what that's like. As we leave the retreat, the concentration will necessarily change. You cannot hold on to it. It's a constructed thing. And when the conditions change, it will change. But I do believe in my scientific research, my own brain, it changes the waves of the brain. It somehow shifts the grooves in the mind, our neural pathways, neuroplasticity, and that we can continue to use these techniques as we go back into our lives to deepen and continue to develop calm and equanimity. Because what we see is it only takes a moment to connect. Mindfulness is digital. You can be mindful and connect in any moment. Concentration is analog. It takes time to actually develop and you can feel it building. But we can connect in any moment and then mindfulness allows choices. This is one of the things we practice for, that that moment of clarity where we recognize this is what's happening. Choice how to respond. This practice makes it more possible that calm or equanimity will be a possible choice for us. That calm or equanimity will be more available as a natural response. So we start to you know, learn from the whole um, range of practices that we do here, the, the benefit of the structure and the clarity, the simplicity of the practice, and how to practice without straining and striving. This is so important, how to practice in a balanced way. And it doesn't mean no effort. You know, most of us, when we hear first this, first start to hear this message of relaxation and contentment, it's like, oh, great, why didn't they tell me that before? I can just relax and cool out here. And we go in perhaps a little bit that direction. But we see that's not onward leading either. And so we keep finding this middle ground, this right effort. And we keep wanting to learn and develop our skills and our understanding of meditation, that this is more important, not any one or any particular experience, and that we can deepen in calm and insight for our own well-being and for the benefit and well-being of everyone we meet, and ultimately all beings. This is what we practice for. So I want to finish with the words of the Buddha from the Majjhima Nikaya. So this holy life bhikkhus, Remember I said right at the beginning, bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, is serious practitioners. That's us. This holy life, this, this life of practice, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the, attainment of, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or for knowledge and vision for its benefit, but is this unshakable deliverance of mind that it is the goal of this holy life its heartwood and its end. It's unshakable deliverance of mind. That's the heartwood. That's the promise of this practice. And so we invite the breath in. And as I close, I invite you to bring the breath to the foreground. Release and relax. 
settle into your bodies and know that you're on a path that goes in the direction of greater freedom and greater happiness. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Time now for walking, cool night air, great horned owl calling in the distance, and then invite you to come back if you haven't made it yet, your last chance to come join us for some sweet chanting to close our day of practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.